Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger, and I am joined today with a friend of mine, Quentin Fincarrick. Uh, he is here with me. We're going to talk on the subject of residential schools, particularly here in Canada. Uh, this is uh, an issue that, of course, has gotten a lot of exposure lately with what was discovered, 215 unmarked graves in Kamloops, one of the residential schools there. We're going to talk about that today and give a little bit more context to that. But before we do, I, I want to welcome Quentin to the show. Welcome. Glad to have you with us. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. And let's begin, because we're going we're gonna to delve into your story today. Because uh, you've got a story, I think, that resonates with a lot of people and their experience here in Canada, which uh, which we want to get into. And you actually began to publicly talk about after this story broke with Kamloops. And so uh, I want to get into that story. But before we do, let's just take a moment to to learn a little bit more about you and the work that you do. Because you're actually, first of all, you're a listener of the show, but you're also a friend and a, a fellow partner in ministry in that, you know, you're you're involved in a great ministry. Tell us Tell us about that. Thank you, Andy. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the invitation. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I am with a group called the Wellspring Foundation for Education. We are a Christian ministry that specializes in developing quality education in East Africa, and we really focus in on uh, how can we make sustainable changes to the educational ecosystem beyond maybe uh, a desk or a book or some training. We're very interested in what the root causes are of uh, are the cycles of poverty and how can we help see lasting change? Of course, with an understanding that each of child has justice, dignity, and worth uh, as children in God's eyes. Now, your area of expertise is actually in fundraising. Yes. Which, uh, which I think is interesting because a lot of people would see that as part of the challenge of ministry. You see that part of the joy of ministry is how, how do we fund these, these, you know, visions, these incredible projects. Let me just take a moment to ask you about that. Like what, what got you into fundraising? I mean, did you grow up one day and say, Hey mom, dad, you know, I want to be a professional fundraiser, you know, someday. And I want to, you know, go yeah. work for an organization to help them get money. Like how did, how did that develop? Uh, in 2003, my wife and I, um, received and uh, obeyed God's call in our lives to sell everything and move across the world and uh, begin a, a ministry in Seoul, South Korea, where we worked with uh, lower income communities and helped to uh, really share the gospel and share the love of Christ through, um, through education and help to provide some of those children with the uh, the educational opportunities that would not be afforded to them because of their uh, because of their socioeconomic status, and in that part of the world, our heart was the education that you receive very much uh, paints a direction as to what your quality of life will be in the future. So we really had a heart for that. So as we were spending our years in Korea, as you or any missionary knows, that there are uh, times when you need to take furlough and you need to raise funds and you need to continue to uh, fuel the ministry. 
uh, and that's the practical needs of the ministry. So the the frustration that I had or the experience I had is when I would take furlough and raise money and come back to Canada, the momentum of the ministry would slow down. And when I came back to Korea, of course, I would be back doing the ministry that I wanted to do, but the the funds and the the staff capacity would naturally diminish. And a seed was planted in my mind at that time. Wow, wouldn't it be amazing if someone could come alongside me and in their giftings help to raise the resources necessary so that myself and others could stay focused on doing what we feel God is calling us to do. And that was when that seed began to be planted. And of course, returning to Canada, there were a number of experiences that helped that blossom. I think that's that's really interesting that it's from your love and call and ministry in missions that your desire to fundraise was was birth that your desire is to continue that work but realizing the importance of actually connecting with donors and raising those funds i mean this is part of the this is an interesting part of doing ministry and and i don't want to get sidetracked in our conversation <laughs> here but i just think it's interesting that you know, how, how do you channel, you know, people's resources, whether that be financial or time or the, you know, or, or giftings of all sorts, you know, how, that, that's one of, I think, our biggest, one of our biggest challenges in ministry is actually just funneling that into, into this vision of whatever that organization may be, whether that's uh, Wellsprings or Apologetics Canada or, or whatever it might be. One thing I've appreciated about you is your heart for ministry in the kingdom at large. For those of you listeners, just to appreciate, Quentin is one of those guys who has come alongside Apologetics Canada and said, hey, I'm not only a listener, but I appreciate you guys, and you've given us uh, plenty of advice and and help along the way as a brother in Christ, and we sure we sure appreciate you, man. So So thank you. Thank you. I want to jump into this topic uh, today. This is a fairly heavy topic. This is a topic that Canada is just continuing to wrestle through, and that is the way that the Indigenous peoples of Canada have been treated and continue to be treated, quite honestly, in Canada over the years. And and, I, and the reason I, I, I'm saying it the way I'm saying it is because I, I'm a bit of an outsider. So I, I'm from uh, the United States. I came to Canada. And one of the things that I, I noticed when I first came here is that I noticed this issue that, that was going on in Canada uh, and, and the ways in which the Indigenous people were, were being treated, the way that they were being spoken about. Uh, particularly, I'm an outdoors guy, as you know, and... And it was interesting, just just some of the fishing circles that I would travel in, and the way that I would hear just the animosity uh, about you know the the kinds of fishing practices that Indigenous people are allowed to do, or just the outright dislike of Indigenous peoples that I've heard. I mean, I, I could tell you conversations; they're really quite brutal. And I began to realize, man, this is a this is an open wound that mm-hmm. continues to to fester here in Canada. Uh, let's just, as as we talk about that, I want to I want to begin by just maybe giving listeners a little bit of perspective of what just happened. So recently in Kamloops, as we mentioned, two hundred fifteen unmarked graves were discovered. Now, what what do we know? What what do you know? And and I can share a little bit of what what I've read uh, about this situation. 
Uh, my understanding is that the Sequep MC First Nations near the Kamloops Residential School, through a private investigation, have uncovered to date uh, the remains of 215 children. That's what has been found so far. And uh, this has been a confirmation of what uh, myself and many others have, I would say, known for a long time. But uh, I think now is beginning to gain a little bit more visibility mainstream and uh, is is starting a, a conversation about uh, this topic that probably doesn't get discussed enough. It, it, I, I agree with you. It doesn't get discussed enough. I think a lot of people don't realize how important this issue is, but also how raw this issue is. I mean, just take this school as an example. The Kamloops Indian Residential School, as it was called, uh, was established in 1890 and was in operation until uh, 19. 69. So first of all, that isn't very long ago. And and I was talking with somebody recently here in Canada and they were saying, man, like, why is this such a big issue? These residential schools, he he said, like, when, when did the last school close? And I said, well, 1996. Yeah. And you could see the shock in his, in his eyes. He was like, 1996. Yeah. Like, yeah, like this is, (laughs) that's the same time I graduated high school. Right, like this is still raw. Like this is this this isn't like old <laughs> history. No, no, this is this is still very much a live and active history. These th- it's not like these are stories that are being told second and third hand. These are mm-hmm. still stories being told first hand. Yes, yes, uh, I have friends who have graduated from some of these residential schools. To put a little bit of perspective into this, when we're talking children, we're we're talking between ages four to 16 and estimates say that there were approximately 150,000 children who attended these schools mm-hmm. to, to give a, a little bit of context to this. Cause I, I didn't realize this until I started, uh, you know, uh, the book I wrote reclaimed you and I've talked quite yes. a bit about it. And in, in writing that book, I, I did some research into, you know, what took place here in, in Canada because in in the book I talk a lot about dehumanization and and when I began to read about these residential schools I mean from my time first of all being here in Canada and and then starting to look more into it I thought man something's going on here yes you know that that needs to that needs to be uh looked at and I, and I began to realize cuz people might be wondering okay uh, why did these residential schools uh begin like what what was the purpose mm-hmm. of these schools how how would you answer that by the way this is a complicated discussion, and uh, I'll just I'll just start off by saying that this is my opinion, and uh, in no way am I an expert. But this has been my lived experience. My understanding of the of why the residential school system started was the settlers in this part of North America brought with them a certain paradigm of what is appropriate and what is necessary for the the raising and culturing and civilizing of people. And at that time, and again, this is complicated, uh, at the time there was a certain understanding that to, to be a, a Christian and to be a civilized person, there were certain behaviors and 
actions and appearances that went alongside that. And I can imagine uh, at that time, and having read some of the literature, there were opinions uh, from some of these founding Canadians that there was a need to civilize the these first peoples. And at the time, too, it's also important to, to point out that there, there wasn't any formal education in a large part of the in a large part of the country. And uh, as the laws of this country were being established, those also pertaining to children needing the needing to go to school, there was this tension between these two cultures that were meeting as the, the country was growing ever westward. I, I think that that is quite accurate from the research that I have that I've done as well into what was going on. I want to provide some quotes here that I think give a little context. Now, these are by two men who were involved in the setting up of residential schools. This first one here is Duncan Campbell. Uh, he worked at the Department of Indian Affairs, and, and he stated the purpose of the schools quite frankly. He said, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic body politic. Now, Nicholas Davin, who also was an architect of this, he writes, um, if anything is to be done with the Indian, we must catch him very young. The children must be kept constantly within the circle of civilized conditions. And, and you get the idea of what's going on here, right? Like th they want to, they want to try to force this education on children, which is, mm -hmm. has been, and I believe rightly called a cultural genocide where really to, to take that culture out of these children to, you know, quote, civilize. Yes. Uh, to civilize yes. them. Now, I think there's some things, though, that Canadians need to be aware of, just to put this into a, a more of a global perspective. Residential schools did not just take place here in Canada. They, they took place elsewhere. This is a, a method that was used in, in different places, Yes, again, for the same purpose. As well, residential schools wasn't the only thing that was going on. There were also industrial schools that were taking place. And sometimes they were a mix between being an industrial school and a residential school. And sometimes they moved from being an industrial school into a residential school. Mm -hmm. That I think is just helpful for people to appreciate. And that there, there's a, there is a slight nuance between those two, as in different countries, uh, industrial schools were used to help with children who were, say, either abandoned or were into criminal activity to try to get them trained into a specific, right. you know, a specific job, uh, whatnot. But, you know, these residential schools specifically that we're talking about here, they were very focused, weren't they? Like, they would take children, specifically, right, a, a child, mm -hmm. out of that family into... Uh, a school in which they were boarded, right? They, they lived there, yes. boarded. And this is something, too, that I thought was interesting from my research, is that these schools then were f were quite a ways away from the family. Yes. I mean, they did that purposely. Yes, very purposely, because if the school was far enough, then in those times for these Indigenous families, it was not common for them to go on a long trip to go and say visit their children and the long the farther the school was away or have the, the money to exactly the time or the money or the resources the farther these schools away the more they could begin to break these 
bonds and to begin to, to put it in other terms, to, to break down uh, the child and to begin to reculture them uh, according to how they wanted to be trained. Now, these schools were poorly funded yes. and terribly mismanaged. Yes. Uh, I mean, that, that's just taking into account whether or not, what, of course, what they did. This cultural genocide, I mean, yes. that that in of itself is brutal, but then the way that these schools were being run yes, uh, between the Canadian government and the church yes, was terrible. It's highly nuanced. You can imagine that in the beginning of the origin of our country, the government wanted to achieve these objectives as effectively and as cheaply as possible. There, there were a number of partners, and, and the church was one of the main partners they worked with, who were willing to take on this project of educating children. And we should just pause here real quick just to say, when we say church, it's a variety of different denominations, uh, not only the, the Roman Catholic, but various other uh, denominations that were involved. And, and that's an important point to make, is that the it's it's not as easy to point a finger at one denomination or one uh, sect, but there was, uh, yes, there, there was a movement among, it was in the motivation of different faith groups to partner with the government to, to run these schools. And because of the funding that they had, obviously, as anyone knows, when you have severe lack of funding, there's a number of issues of neglect and abuse that can come out of that. Now, one of the things that I think is so important about talking about this issue, I mean, first of all, we want to know what actually took place, right? So Canada has been putting, particularly the Indigenous community, the, uh, has has been putting more effort into understanding the history uh, and researching the history and setting the record straight of what happened. And I think that's part of why, you know, they went to go look with this ground penetrating radar, right? Yes. Like on this this residential school in Camlos. So you know, okay, you know, we we've we estimate, you know, in, in the research I was doing, they, you know, the estimates were that up to four thousand children died mm. in these schools. And I, and I mean those those numbers range depending upon, you know, what sources you're reading. Because in many ways they're not they're not sure. I mean that's how either documents haven't been released or. You know, yes. it, it's so difficult to to know whatever happened to that child that got taken yeah. from that from that family, which I mean is just terrible yeah. in itself. But I mean, this this then becomes real evidence confirmation that no, like these these children, these conditions were in fact terrible, and you have you have kids that that lost their lives in these yes. these schools. Yes, and I'll I'll be a little bit more pointed, Andy. I. I've been wondering in recent days, why did it take the discovery of 215 unmarked graves to prompt the type of action that we're seeing at this point? And, and as, if, if I have a chance to share a little bit more of my story, I personally, even at a stage when I was younger, where I was still very much unaware of what my background was, even reading my own textbooks in school, reading between the lines, the evidence was there that Indigenous families were torn apart, children were brought to these schools, were not treated well, were neglected, died of exposure, malnutrition, disease, abuse. And something 
at this, even this early stage of life, this didn't ring well with me. I didn't understand why this wasn't talked more about. As I read about the, uh, the, the Red River Rebellion and some of the actions taken by the government of the time to how really, in part, the Northwest Mounted Police were founded uh, with the purpose, in part, of suppressing this, quote, insurrection. Uh, and why really the diaspora of my ancestors were a result of the, uh, the, the horrible oppression that happened during this time. So my, my question is, why, why did it take this level of confirmation to see the type of action that we are seeing today? The, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee has released the report years ago. Uh, there, the, in my opinion, the evidence has been there, but I think, uh, and I think we can answer that as we get into more of the topic of dehumanization, but uh, this has been something that has been eating a little bit away at me. Hey listeners, Troy here. I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast so far. Don't worry, we'll be right back to it very soon. I just wanted to take a quick moment to remind you about the AC Literary Expedition that is coming up on June 27th. As of right now, we are technically full. However, many of you that have signed up to be a part of the expedition haven't actually gotten your Zoom meeting registration. That's super important and really crucial to actually being a part of the event. See, if you're signed up, that's great. You're halfway there. But make sure that you go on to apologeticscanada.com and make sure that you sign up for the Zoom meeting link. That way, it ensures that we're going to see you there and you are fully signed up. Again, that's the AC Literary Expedition on Progressive Christianity, June 27th at 4 p.m. Pacific Time or 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Now, back to the episode. Why, why did it take this level of confirmation to see the type of action that we are seeing today? The, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, committee has released the report years ago. Uh, there, the, in my opinion, the evidence has been there, but I think, uh, and I think we can answer that as we get into more of the topic of dehumanization. But uh, this has been something that has been eating a little bit away at me. Well, even myself, when I'm when I'm looking at this, I mean, listeners, you need to think about the fact that we have 215 un marked graves think about that and i think this is the beginning andy yeah oh I, I agree with you i agree with you but you know if you think about that idea these are unmarked i mean this idea that you know what what value did they have i mean they didn't even have enough value that you would mark the grave right mm. and and i think that when we look at the history of this and the way that these people were treated, it's it's a direct result of how they were viewed. Yes, and and I want to get into that in a moment, but but back to what you said with regards to your story. I, I, let's jump into that. We need to move into that because I I think Quentin that one of the things that's going to be important as Canada continues to heal and move forward in these issues, and, and again remembering these are these are raw issues still yeah. still is that we're not hearing enough of the stories. 
we're not hearing enough of of what happened and i think it's so important that people begin to talk more i mean we had terry crosby that, that worked with us for a number of years uh here at apologize canada we we love terry and the, we talked a lot about these indigenous issues you know having terry with his native background and his mom who is a residential school survivor and, and in fact she was at one of our apologize canada conferences wow. and and shared on that experience and i, I think we need to hear those yeah. stories but but quentin you after this um came in the news with the kamloops uh this this kamloops story you began to share your own story yeah. and, and i was wondering if you could you could begin to just tell our listeners you know what is what is your story what is your background yeah i think the the best place to start is that um for most of, well, for my entire childhood and into my adolescence, I did not know my background. And that was a direct result of the, the treatment and the experience of many, many generations of my family uh, before and the decisions that they made to, in their mind, try to protect my brother and I. So we, we come from many, many generations of Chippewa Cree of the uh, Manitoba area and the Saltu Ojibwe of, uh, of Montana. And so over many generations uh, of overt, well, you could, you could say hostility and prejudice against these peoples, some of the stories of residential school survival and some of those who didn't return there there was a a truth or a an experience that became evident to my grandparents and my mother especially that if if our children want to live in their minds a normal life the best thing we can do to protect them is to not make this to not live this way of life publicly hide their identity and it that's what happened is my mom chose to hide our identities for i, I remember having an experience when i was eight years old my my grandfather who i don't know very well for for a number of different reasons he took me and my brother aside he knelt down at eye level and he looked us in the eyes and he showed us his indian status card and i remember this so well because sometimes you have those experiences when you're a child and you have an experience with another adult and it was very intense and I knew there was something special that he was trying to communicate. And he said to us, Brett Quentin, never let them know who you are. He didn't say much more than that, but he wanted us to be very clear that we needed to hide who we are to be safe, to, to live a normal life. My grandfather experienced a lot of abuse, constantly in fear of losing his job. Uh, my mother lived a little more openly in her identity, but endured a lot of uh, slurs, mistreatment, different types of assault, uh, and other types of injustice. And uh, out of a maternal heart, decided that she wanted to, to hide this from us. Now, of course, this made for very awkward childhood when you in a normal setting when you talk about your backgrounds and your ethnic backgrounds and everyone's talking about where they're from, uh, my response was always, well, I, I don't know. And it, 
it made me feel it made me feel stupid, really. How could I not know? The couple of times I did ask my family and my relatives, there was a lot of awkward silence. There was a lot of uh, non-answers and changing of subject. And there was this, this sense of shame around the subject. And I couldn't put words on it, but kids are pretty perceptive. And I got the idea that this was not a topic to be discussed and that there was something there. I didn't stop wondering about it, but I, I let it be for that time. A couple of days after high school grad, I was packing my car to leave home and uh, my mother called me in and she was, she was completely, as many mums are <laughs> when their kids are leaving, but there was something there. And uh, through the tears, she began to explain that the choices she had made and that the background that me and my brother had. And she tried to explain a little bit of why she did that. Of course, my... Of why she hid it. Of why she hid it. And at the time, there were so many emotions, Andy. It's, it, I, I want to be able to say that I was mature and could understand, but I, I really didn't. And, and even to this day, there's a lot of emotions that I have to work through because of that. But over the years, I, I've begun to understand why, why there would have been that motivation to do that. Even growing up as a child, hearing the conversations, hearing the, the prejudice and the dislike, and sometimes even the, the hatred towards this group of people that others thought were, so who, where certain people thought this group of people were holding on to this painful past and acting in a way that was at the benefit and the drag of the rest of society, maybe is a sanitized way to put it. Well, I, th I think it's it's a reality that, that when you live in Canada, you definitely come across that sediment. There's no question about it. Yeah. Which, by the way, uh, Chief Kenny Blacksmith, uh, an incredible leader here in Canada, wonderful Christian man that's been leading... Uh, the charge and just reconciliation in general. Uh, this is something that he brings up that, that, that this, that this is, you know, you, even so for somebody like myself, right. Coming from the United States, new to Canada, Quentin, those are the conversations I heard going on yeah. here. And I could only imagine if I had, you know, native background, I, I, I sure wouldn't want to share it. Yeah. And especially, you wouldn't even know where it would even be a safe place to share it, depending yeah. upon the views of those you're around. Yeah. The second half of the story is what I chose to do with that. And, and as you just shared, there was an immense pressure at that time, coupled with this, this socializing shame that I carried for a long time, where in my... In my mind, it made sense for me to conform to uh, uh, an image that was implicitly seemed to be more acceptable. Uh, and I think as a result, perhaps, of not having this knowledge as a child, and you grow up, you begin educated, you become socialized by these experiences, uh, I began to become very very effective at hiding that part of myself and portraying a side of myself that I thought was more acceptable. 
So then if I, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is just given the cultural milieu in Canada and, and the types of the, the ways that people are speaking about indigenous people, uh, the, the hostility that you're outwardly, you know, seeing or yeah. that you're, that you're just even sensing led you to a place to, to adopt that sort of person, that, that kind of persona where you would hide that part of, of your identities out yes. what you're getting at. Yes. And myself and a lot of others, especially in the Métis community where uh, we, we may not be as visibly a minority, um, we, because of, because of history and decisions that our ancestors made around the Indian Act, we do not find ourselves on reservations and as stewards of the crown. We've largely had to assimilate into society, but we... I find myself in a very strange situation along with many others where there there's this cultural vacuum because of history, because of the legacy of residential schools and others, and a lot of the shame involved and a lot of the, the hiding of who we are, where we don't, we don't feel a connection to our history. We don't fully understand what that means and, and feel accepted as a, an indigenous person, but at the same time, we don't feel safe and fully accepted in, in mainstream Canadian society. So the actions that made sense to me as a younger man was to, to hide that. And the, you know, there's something about shame where it has this ability to, to master you if you stay silent long enough. And, over the years, as as God has done a healing work in me, as God has, I've become to more comfortable with who I am, an understanding of who I am in his grace and mercy, have begun to struggle more with reconciling those different compartmentalized parts of my life to a point where, fast forward to this stage, where lying in my bed the weekend that that discovery was made, knew that Quentin, it's, it's now or never. If you are going to have the, the courage to speak publicly about it, it's going to be now. Or you will perhaps live with this for the rest of your life. And I chose to begin walking more in that freedom. I think it's such an interesting point how shame can, can control you. You know, I think given your background and, and the shame you were steeped in, and then you start to hear, you know, the way people can, uh, you know, might talk about uh, the Indigenous community or resentment that they might have uh, or frustration that they might have uh, of or just the, you know, what we often see and that I have I've seen quite a bit. There's one thing, again, I loved about Chief Kenny Blacksmith is he really helped me to see how easy it is to even adopt a prejudice towards a people by you hear a story of an individual and then you paint an entire community a certain way, whether yeah. it's as lazy or drunks yeah. or, or, uh, criminals or the like. Yeah. And it, and it was interesting how, you know, that, that, that shame yeah. can begin to define you yeah. within that culture. And I could only imagine how it would lead you just to be silent. You, you can't imagine how much those prejudices have shaped how I've chosen to live my life. Some of those assumptions or prejudice about Indigenous people being 
lazy degenerates, washouts, um, has shaped how I, when someone asks, you often ask in a circle just for fun, what's your greatest fear? And people have interesting things, snakes, heights. For me, it's always been very clear that my greatest fear is to live a life of mediocrity. And over time, I've begun to put together the pieces that it really came from this background, where I never want to be described as someone who is matching some of those descriptions that uh, that are used and 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 coming and, and going from there it's had such an influence on how I accept and apply grace and and forgiveness uh, to myself even too it's been challenging now one of the things that's come up in this conversation a couple of times now is the idea of reconciliation you know how how do you move forward? How, how do you move forward as an individual? How do we move forward uh, as, a, as a culture, uh, as a country, uh, especially in light of, you know, this, this past? It was interesting, again, with Kenny Blacksmith, one of the things he did that really impressed me is during a talk he gave, he, he said at the end, hey, if you just need to start over, and uh, he, he, says, uh, he says, I'll be here at the front, I'll give you a hug. And today could be a day that you start over. You start yeah. over with the way you think and and speak about about people. The the thing that he was getting at that I think is is so right is we we need to see each other correctly. Yes. So we treat each other correctly. Yes. And it's only then that you can that you can actually see reconciliation take place. Yes. And because this this really is baggage from where this all began. Yes. I mean, the, the whole residential school, the, the dehumanization that was taking place, not only here in Canada, but elsewhere, uh, was, is, was a worldview problem. Yes. You know, in the, in the way that we're seeing people, the value that we're placing on people and how ultimately we're going to treat them. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, Quentin, but one of the things that I get so concerned about, though, is like, listen, I, I think a lot of people, truthfully particularly here in Canada, they almost don't even want to deal with this issue because A, they're not even sure how to deal with it as well. We look at our neighbors, the United States, and just the disaster that's going on there and how poorly they're dealing with with issues, to be quite frank, uh, that ultimately we want to see reconciliation. I mean, my fear is, is that we, you can see shame just give birth to more shame, Yeah. right? Now we just... Now we just have more shame, we have more anger, more frustration, and now we're just even more divided as a country. Right. I mean, have you thought about that? Like, Yes. I, I, when I think back to what got us into this situation in the first place, it was an externally applied system that, that tried to correct what was thought of in that time as a problem. And I feel we're in the same place now where we are making these brutal discoveries and the conversation I'm seeing happen is we need to make these changes. We need to create these policies. The government needs to take this action. And in my mind, I think, have we not learned anything? Is it really a matter of changing the system or perhaps is there a greater issue of the heart and how we view one another and the worldview that we have and how we view each other as human beings is the heart root. I am very much of the opinion that this is not, that a revolution of the system is not needed, but rather a revolution of the heart. 
uh, honestly, Andy, the reason I am here today having this conversation is because of uh, the the grace and the mercy that God showed me as a young 12-year-old boy many, many years ago. I was well on my way to becoming a statistic and ending my life, but only because of God's grace was I able to find peace and begin a different journey. And uh, th- that may be a simplistic answer, but I, I can't think of any other answer, Andy. I think we we need to, one, take a long look and examine our own hearts. And perhaps we need to begin taking a hard look at how we view this group of people that we live alongside every single day of our lives. I mean, I, I found it very interesting. I've had the opportunity and the privilege in recent years to to travel to Rwanda and explore the, the Genocide Museum. And I was, I remember being in the basement, being stunned, reading some of the, some of the boards and some of the language that was used by the, the Hutus talking about the Tutsis very much to, to the description paralleled how the Jews were described in pre-Holocaust Germany. And to, to my horror recently, I've, some of that same language is also used of indigenous people in Canada during that time. I think there is a, there is a parallel to when, when we allow ourselves to begin viewing others as, as less than human, then that is really the, the first step towards some of these. The inverse of that is how do we begin to humanize those around us and begin examining our own heart? And I, I believe that's the path to reconciliation, the first step. I absolutely agree with you. I think that this is this is a I think you've you've put your finger on an important issue. We tend to want to policize our way yeah. out of, of of these issues, but we we neglect to realize how we got ourselves into these issues. That's right. It's 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 a heart issue. We got into this with uh our heart and it's it's the heart that gets you out of this. Is as how are we going to see one another? How are we going to value one another? Am I going to see somebody? Am I going to value somebody because of policy? Right. I mean, that's never going to actually re- lead to reconciliation. That's never going to lead to a, a change in the way that it, that one person speaks of another person. I mean, James says, you know, the 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 tongue. Right. He talks about the the the, the tongue is 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 a can be a flame right yes. i mean it can it it can ignite yes. all sorts of hatred and shame yes and and we've seen that historically now cuz i mean one thing that that i i mean i wish we had time to get into is just that historical worldview yeah that conceived of residential schools that saw people as savages that that saw yeah. them as less than human and that wanted to use a, an education system to try to to solve exactly. you know this problem. Which, by the way, you're absolutely right. It's interesting when you study uh, the the Rwanda genocide, the genocide of the Jews. You see the same phrases used down to the words, down to the words. Final solution. Exactly. Final solution. I, they they <laughs> and and you're right. You see that is you see that 
has even, having even played out here in Canada. Yeah. I will speak a little bit more strongly on this point in that we will never as a nation come to true reconciliation and peace by continuing to create policy and pointing fingers at the government and expecting others to do that hard work for us. Now, this is a good point because then the finger's not just getting pointed at the government, is it? It's also getting pointed at the church. And and I think appropriately at some regard, I think this, in speaking as a pastor, it's important for people to realize the church has not always gotten it right. Of course. Of course. <laughs> there are plenty of moments throughout history where the church has gotten it wrong, terribly wrong, or that godly men and women have gotten it terribly wrong. And one of the things I love about the Bible, by the way, mm-hmm. is the Bible doesn't hide those stories. Yes. It tells you those stories. It tells you yes. not not just the success, it tells you the failure. Yes. Why? So that you see clearly the broken condition of human beings. So to think that the church was always going to get it right in these issues is really... Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, off base. The the fact, and and the reality is, is we can't hide from that. We can't we can't pretend that the church didn't get it wrong, or not even talk about that aspect. I think personally, I think it's important, and I've shared I've shared this before on the show. It's important that we acknowledge our mistakes. Yes, that the church acknowledges its mistakes, so that we can move forward. Uh, if, I, I'll never forget, just briefly here, that when I was in seminary and I was studying Martin Luther. You know, a master's class on church history, his anti-Semitism was never brought up in class. Yes. I had to go back to my seminary professor and challenge him on this when I got called out on something in front of an audience about Martin Luther, and I was completely huh. unaware of his history. And that it, I was thankful for the question that the person asked me because it led me into to realizing that my education had been whitewashed, historically mm. whitewashed, cleaned up. And led me to go see, okay, what really happened there? Right. So, because I, I went back to the professor and I said, listen, you got to tell the whole story. You can't just tell part of it. Yes. And that was my experience as well in Bible college. Yeah. Uh, I, I will state uh, a less popular opinion that it's not my, it's not my belief that every church official in these residential schools was a murderer and a sadist, that I believe there were many, there were many people who believed, who genuinely believed they were fulfilling the work of the Great Commission through their service in these residential schools. But there, it's, it's nuanced, it's complex, but there, there's more than enough blame to share around and there's more than enough opportunity to point fingers. But the convenient thing about pointing a finger is that it releases me from responsibility to look at my own heart and to take action in my own circle. One thing I've tried to be very, very intentional about it as I'm beginning to speak a little more public about my experience is that we, we need to move forward. And, and this is part of the cynicism that I experienced growing up is most people felt like these discussions with First Nations would continue to bog down and never go anywhere. And it just, it just seemed to cost more time and money. And there is something to that argument. On the flip side, what can be done? Well, it begins with each of us. It begins 
with this conversation today. It begins with others who might be listening to this or other stories, examining their own heart and perhaps having conversations with someone in their own life or their own circle and beginning to see each other more as equals, as brothers and sisters, as Canadians, and taking opportunity to to move forward in, instead of holding the past over each other as leverage, as painful leverage. There is a time and a season for mourning and grief and pain, but there's, there's also healing and redemption that is possible. It's interesting as we've been watching this unfold that the thing I continue to see in the news of, of all that's been going on has been about the Pope. Yeah. And I find it interesting that, you know, our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, has been outspoken about, you know, I appreciate his his desire for reconciliation and, and apologies that he's put forward from the government. But there's been this call for an apology from the, the Catholic Church specifically mm-hmm. from the Pope. And there have been many that have asked for that. The The Pope did recently talk about this issue. He said, uh, I, I follow... Uh, with sorrow, the news that arrives from Canada about the upsetting discovery of the remains of 215 children. He says, I join with the Catholic Church in Canada in expressing uh, closeness to the Canadian people traumatized by the shocking news. This sad discovery uh, increases the awareness of the sorrows and suffering of the past. May the political and religious authorities continue to collaborate with determination to shed light on this sad affair and to commit to a path of healing. Now, people will hear that, but what they that what they're still upset about what they what they didn't hear what they've been calling for is is an apology. How important do you think that that is that the Pope specifically apologizes? I would ask you, Andy, who who is the majority of voices asking for that apology? Is it people in the inside of the Indigenous community, or is it those on the outside? And what I'm trying to get at is. I acknowledge that those words were said, and I feel those words are helpful. For some, it won't be enough. And for some, nothing that the Pope or any other church official says will be enough. There is a certain culture or a certain stream of thought right now that wants to continue to out these wrongs and these injustices, and that there is... There, there, there's a validation of a, of a type of thinking by tearing down these institutions. But the question I ask is, wh- when does that transition to building up and restoring and to begin taking personal accountability and, and moving forward as a community? Th- there is a time and a place for these hard, honest questions and answers and reflection. My concern is, is what's next. I've seen this cycle all through my life happen where there have been apologies and there have been promises made and then it seems to fall off the news cycle and nothing seems to change. And, and I wouldn't say it's a personal cynicism. I, maybe it's learning from experience from the perspective that I've come from. But there is also a reality that your healing can't be dependent on somebody else. That, that you, because I mean, you could easily hear, well, I don't know if I, if his apology was good enough, for example, right. or 
was it sincere or whatever. I mean, right. at, at the end of the, the at some point, it, it is going to have to come back on yourself and say, okay, where, how is my view of another person mm-hmm. or how is my view of myself? You know, how, how, how do I move forward in this? Whether I have been the one wronged or doing the, right. the, the wronging. One thing I think is interesting though, just in the, with, with the news that I, just I have to highlight because I think we have to be so careful is the news often is just going to give you one mm-hmm. one side of the story that's going to sell newspapers or get clicks. Right. And that is that they, they don't tell you that the Pope has apologized for a number of different issues from the church's involvement to crimes in Ireland to South America. Yes. But the Pope has a policy that he makes those apologies in person and not through some statement that he wants to actually be there in person to make those apologies. And so that's not something you hear. So it's not that he won't apologize. It's that, but the question is, well, when are you going to come to Canada, I guess, right? Right. And and make that apology or whatever. But, but I think it comes back to what you're saying. Well, can, do you just wait then for that? Yeah. You know, or do you move forward? Father Raymond D'Souza wrote an excellent article recently talking about the Catholic Church's history in regards to this issue and the um, the numbers of apologies and actions that have been taken historically. Um, it, it is interesting that a lot of that has not been covered in the media and the drive for a new apology. And I'm not saying that an apology perhaps or some sort of acknowledgement isn't continuing to be necessary. However, from experience, Andy, knowing what it's like to live most of your life feeling like a victim, living that type of secrecy, it's no way to live. It is no way to live a life of thriving and fullness. And I'm about ready to be done with that. And and I would like to move on and I would like to live in a greater sense of freedom. And I I would encourage others as well to to be mindful of that. It, it is not a healthy and full life to live in a perpetual state of anger and victimhood. I think this is a great place to to end the podcast because one of the questions I want to ask you is simply that, you know, what would you share? It's interesting uh from my own, you know, childhood, I had one of my best friends uh, had a, a native background, and ironically, his last name is Savage. Uh, but we never, I never put that connection together. Uh, it, it for me, his last name was always a name. It never had any derogatory yeah. connotations. But what what's interesting though is I remember that my friend, and I've never, you know, I've never, I'm now that I've talked about this, I'm going to talk to him more about it. Because he never really did talk a whole lot about his his background. He would share briefly at times, but you could tell that there was there was a level of shame uh, there. Yeah. And even to this day, I've never really we've talked only briefly on it. Mm-hmm. But I I have a feeling. I mean, look, that's one of my best friends. Yeah. And and I I'm realizing that this is this, this a lot more. Of this is going on. Than a lot of us realize. Listen, what would you just say to those people like yourself that have harbored their own level of yeah. shame? What would be your encouragement as we close our podcast today? Yeah, Andy, if I could end with saying, if if there is any who resonate with this story, perhaps you find yourself in a similar situation and 
Maybe you've also struggled with this part of your life that you've maybe kept secret or tried to keep hidden. I, I would encourage you to meet a. Fr- I, I met a friend named Jesus a long time ago, and he brought a degree of peace to my life that uh, I could not find elsewhere. And, and he has some words that he shared in the book of Matthew eleven twenty eight that says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's podcast. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. And as such, if you want to keep up with all the things that we are doing, please follow us on our social media. We're easy to find. Simply search up Apologetics Canada or feel free to head to our website at www.apologeticscanada.com. Lastly, make sure you like and subscribe to the AC Podcast on your preferred streaming platforms. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, love God, love people. Bye for now.